seated. All right, turn with me in the Bible to Mark chapter 2. We're continuing in our series in the Gospel of Mark. We're looking at Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. So let me begin by reading these verses for us today. Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. He, that is Jesus, Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wine skins. So back in 2014, uh, some people did a survey, and at that time, 25% uh, of Connecticut residents reported that they attended church on a weekly basis. Now, some people did some follow-up work to that survey, and uh, what they and they looked at actual church attendance rec, uh, numbers, and basically one of the things they figured out is that. Uh, about twice as many people reported that they go to church as actually went to church on a weekly basis. So the number was lower. And then during the pandemic, the number has also decreased. Uh, so maybe we're about 10% of people in Connecticut attend church on a weekly basis. Um, and even back in 2014, over half of people in Connecticut said they attend church seldom or never. Uh, so. You know, if you, uh, if you were to go out today, this morning, on the streets of Vernon and find the, you know, probably, uh, now some people attend church occasionally, less often than every week, so if you were to, but, but still, the, the majority, if you were to talk to the majority of people who uh, have no plans to go to church this morning, and you were to ask them, why don't you go to church? Or if you were to just invite them to come to church and sort of listen to people's replies or, or objections or concerns, uh, you'd probably get a wide range of answers, different reasons why people don't go to church, right? But I bet that you'd hear at least two 
uh, two different responses, somewhere or other. I bet you would hear some people say, I don't belong there. Okay? Uh, you know, some people might say, well, church is for people who have a lot of knowledge about religion, and I just don't know a lot about religion. I probably wouldn't fit very well there. Church is for people who sort of feel comfortable in that environment and know when to stand up and when to sit down and when to kneel down and when to raise your hands, and, and I, I, that's all new to me. I just... I just don't know how I'd sort of navigate that. Or, or churches for people who've been there, maybe grown up there and sort of uh, become part of that community. And I might sort of feel like an outsider if I just showed up one day, right? Uh, I actually had one person several years ago say to me, he said, the first time I walked through the door of, of the church, I literally thought the building would fall down. He said, I'm dead serious. I was, I was, I, I was, I, I, I just felt like I don't belong there. And, and I, I've, you know, I know I've done some things in my life that maybe aren't so great. And I just feel like I don't belong in church. All right. So I think that's one thing that you'd hear in one form or another from different people is I don't belong in church. Second thing that I think some people would say if they're being honest is church is boring. I find it more life-giving to take a walk in the woods, to go to an exercise class, to go out to brunch, to do all kinds of other things that you can do on a Sunday morning, right? Even just sleep in and watch TV, right? So some people would say, you know, church sounds like the same routine over and over, every week, boring, I think I'm going to find something life-giving elsewhere. Now, the passage we're looking at this morning actually addresses both of these very common concerns and objections that people have about church and about Jesus, right? I don't belong with Jesus and with the church, and it's boring and lifeless. And this passage actually speaks to those two common concerns that many people have, right? So now, we've, as we've said, the Gospel of Mark is focused on three questions. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? And what does it mean to follow him? And especially this first part is focused on who is Jesus. So uh, one of the things we've seen so far is that Jesus has authority. That's one of the themes that Mark has brought out. He has authority to heal, authority to drive out demons, authority to teach the scriptures, authority to forgive sins. So we've seen this emphasis on Jesus' authority, but today we're going to see something new, two, two things about who Jesus is that, that address these two common concerns. And the two things we're going to see about Jesus today are, number one, that Jesus is a doctor for the sick, and therefore... Church is a place where we can belong with him because he's a doctor for the sick. And second, that Jesus is the lover of our souls, the one who makes all things new and brings us a life that we can't find anywhere else. So I want to look at these two themes. First, Jesus is a doctor for the sick, and then we'll get to Jesus is the lover of our souls. Uh, so first, in verses 13 to 17, we see that Jesus is a doctor for the sick. Verse 17, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick 
I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, Jesus is saying, I came as a doctor for people who are spiritually sick, spiritually ill, spiritually not doing well. Now, let's step back and consider the situation that provoked this comment of Jesus. Why did he say this? Right, Verse 13, we see that Jesus goes out again beside the Sea of Galilee. He was teaching the people. This was his common habit 15 times, Mark just sort of says in passing, and he was teaching the people. So over and over you see that Jesus was teaching uh, very commonly, very publicly, in all kinds of places. But then in verse 14, Mark highlights Jesus' encounter with this man, Levi, the son of Alphaeus, uh, who was... At the tax booth. That means he was working as a tax collector. And Jesus says to him, follow me. And he rose up and followed him. And if you were here a few weeks ago, this story might remind you of when Jesus came to Simon and Andrew and James and John as they were fishing in by the lake. And Jesus said the same thing, follow me. And they left their boat behind and they followed him. And here we see the same pattern. Jesus says, follow me. And he gets up and follows Jesus. Now, some people have wondered who this Levi was because Levi's name doesn't appear in any other places in the gospel except for this story. Uh, now, there were certainly many who followed Jesus who weren't part of the 12. Um, but if you read the gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, verses 9 to 13, it's the same story as it is here in Mark chapter 2. Uh, start at verse 13 to 17, except the person is named Matthew instead of Levi. And Matthew is one of the 12 apostles and the one who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. So uh, most, you know, some people in the ancient world went by two names, uh, just like, uh, you know, for example, Simon Peter or John Mark, right? Even some people today go by two names. My dad goes by his middle name, Paul, even though his first name is George. Uh, nobody knows that his first name is George because everybody calls him Paul, right? So again, I think that's probably what was going on with Matthew, who's also called Levi. Uh, but since Mark only refers to him as Levi, I'll just call him Levi for today. But the one thing that we see very clearly from Mark's gospel about Levi is that he was a tax collector. Now, tax collectors back then were not like IRS employees today. It was a different situation. So the Roman... The Roman government instituted a bunch of different taxes. The tax system was complicated back then. And there were some taxes, including taxes on land, that the government collected directly. But there were other taxes, including taxes on transported goods, goods that were brought from one place to another, that uh, were subcontracted out to sort of local independent agent tax collectors like Levi. So here's how it worked. If you were Levi, and you wanted to be in charge of collecting all the taxes on transported goods in the region around Capernaum, you would make a bid to the government in advance and say, I'll pay you this amount of money for the exclusive right to collect taxes in this region for the next year. You'd basically play a fat, flat fee in advance to the government, the government would say, okay, we'll subcontract to you. And then you could have at it. So the more you collect, the more you profit. 
right? Because the more you, you, you just got to make enough to cover your fee that you paid to the government, and then everything else you make goes in your own pocket. So some tax collectors became very wealthy very quickly, right? It was sort of a quick way up and out for people who didn't have a lot of other options in those days. But if you became a tax collector, that also meant that everybody else who you grew up with hated and despised you because you were profiting off them, right? So tax collectors were seen as traitors, especially in the Jewish community, because the Jewish people had been oppressed under the Romans for years, for decades. And so if a fellow Jew like Levi, and Levi's named after one of the 12 tribes of Israel, so he was certainly a Jew, right? He wasn't a Roman, he wasn't a Greek, he wasn't a foreigner. He grew up in that neighborhood and he became a tax collector. But normally, if you, became a if you grew up and became a tax collector, you'd be expelled from the synagogue, so you wouldn't be allowed to come to church. You would be disqualified from being a judge or witness in court, and your family would see you as a disgrace. Right? That's how serious people sort of, how, how people treated tax collectors. Because a lot of them, again, a lot of them were sort of greedy and, and just wanted to get what they could get and didn't really think about who they were profiting off of. In fact, the rabbis uh, uh, who disagreed about many, many things all agreed that it was just fine to lie to tax collectors. They said, you know, God's word says don't bear false witness, but these guys are so corrupt that it's okay to lie to them and you don't have to repent, you don't have to be sorry for it. You're fine, right? They thought they were that corrupt so, no other rabbi would have approached a tax collector and said, I want you to become one of my students. That never would have happened. So when Jesus goes up to Levi, this is a big surprise. Nobody would have expected him to do that. One person wrote, Levi was high on most people's list of those to be avoided. He was high on Jesus' list of prime prospects for God's kingdom. And then in verse 15, we see that Jesus not only recruited Levi, he also went to Levi's house for a party where many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. See, Levi wasn't the only tax collector who was attracted to Jesus. There were many others also. And when it talks about tax collectors and sinners, that word sinners in the context basically means people who weren't even trying to obey all of the laws of God. The Pharisees tried, in principle, to obey all of the laws of God. They would have said, you know, if you asked them, they would have said, yes, we believe all those laws and we are trying our best to obey them all. Now, of course, they fall, fell short in many ways, but these people weren't even trying, right? They weren't very religious. They weren't, you know, very serious about studying the Bible. Um, and so the scribes and the Pharisees were scandalized. Verse 16, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? The, the, tax, the scribes and the Pharisees would never have even gone into Levi's house. That would have been considered unclean. But Jesus answered, I'm a doctor who's come for the sick. Right, verse 17. 
I haven't come for people who are righteous and deserving. I've come for people who are undeserving and unrighteous. Now, think for a moment about the particular role and responsibility of a doctor in relation to sick patients, right? And this applies if you're a nurse or a PA or another kind of medical professional, I'll just say doctor, but it applies to anybody who's working in the health professions. Uh, you know, doctors spend some of their time doing preventative care, right? Doing well visits and checkups and screenings and vaccinations and so forth, but almost any doctor spends a disproportionate amount of time with sick people, right? Almost any doctor, you're dealing with people who need medical help, who are in pain, whose bodies aren't working quite so well, and that's your job, to care in particular for those who are sick and those who know that they're sick and who want your help. And so a doctor will never say to a sick person, we can't help you because you're too sick. Go away, get better, and then come back to me. Yeah. Mm. Now, most other places will say that, right? So uh, our family, we had a horrible stomach virus last weekend. That's why we weren't here. Um, and so we were all puking. It was gross, um, <laughs> right? And everywhere, right, the school said, school sent our kids home, right? The school said, don't come back till you're better, right? I didn't want to come here to spread, spread that to everybody else. I could barely get out of bed. Um, right? Most workplaces will say, if you're sick, don't come. Your friends will say, let's get together another day. But the one place you can go, if you really need help, is to see the doctor. Right? Now, most days, if I'm feeling well, I have no particular desire to go to a doctor's appointment. But guess what I did last weekend? I went to urgent care, finally, after five days of it. So I was like, I'm desperate. I need some help. Thankfully, they were able to be somewhat helpful. Here's a question. Do you see Jesus as a doctor who's come for those who are spiritually sick? You see, if Jesus is a doctor for the sick, then the church, which is the collection of people gathered around Jesus, the church is like a hospital. So the church is not an exclusive club where only upright and religiously inclined people are welcome. The church is a hospital for sinners. And unlike many other places, the hospital is a place where anyone can come and show up regardless of their pre-existing conditions, their problems, their weaknesses, and you won't be turned away. And that's why Jesus came. You see, in coming to Jesus, the only requirement is that you recognize your need for the help that only he can provide. That's the only thing you can have to start with. And the only thing that can exclude you from receiving his grace is assuming that you don't need it or you don't want it. You see, when Jesus sees our sins, it's like a doctor looking at a sick person. No matter how ugly and festering the wounds may be, Jesus doesn't run away. Jesus doesn't say, oh, gross, you? No, he says, I'm here to be your doctor. Come 
and I can help you. And I can look at what's wrong, and I can help find a treatment for what's wrong. You see, Jesus came to heal us from the spiritual sickness that we couldn't heal ourselves from. And so if you know that you're a sinner, if you know that spiritually you're not in a great place, you come to the right place. You come to where to hear the word of Jesus. So come to Jesus like Levi and his friends. But also, if Jesus is a doctor who has come for the sick, then you must go to him even and especially when you are spiritually weak. So this applies even if you've been following Jesus for a long time. But you know, sometimes as we've been following Jesus for a long time, we still struggle with bad habits. You know, for example, let's say you have a secret habit that you fall into from time to time. And you know that it's wrong. You know that it's not good for you. Maybe it's drinking too much, or eating too much, or buying too much when you're sad and lonely and depressed. Or maybe it's getting mad and blowing up at people and blaming everybody else around you when you're stressed and frustrated. Here's the question. Do you feel that you can approach Jesus for help even when you've just fallen short again? Or do you feel like I have to first clean up my act and be okay for a couple days and then maybe come back to Jesus and come close to him again? Right? If Jesus is a doctor for the sick, then we can go to him in our time of need, when we feel most tempted, or even when we have fallen short and we know we've messed up. If Jesus is a doctor for the sick, then go to him even and especially when you're under the weather. And don't just wait until you're feeling better, because you might, not, you might or might not feel better. You might need to go to the doctor when you're sick. You need to go to Jesus, even and especially when you're not in a great place. But here's another implication. If Jesus is a doctor who's come for the sick, then we have glorious news to share. Because what's the first thing that Levi does when Jesus calls Levi and says, follow me? The first thing he does is he invites all his friends to his house and says, come and meet Jesus. He invites all his friends and he invites Jesus and his disciples. And he says, come meet each other. Now, Levi doesn't invite his religious friends because he doesn't have any religious friends. All his friends are irreligious tax collectors and sinners. That's the circles that he runs in. So he invites all those people to come and meet Jesus. All those people who the Pharisees look at and say, who are those people? We don't want them. And those people look at the Pharisees and say, I don't want what you have because you just have a long list of rules and you basically have an exclusive club that there's hardly any way to get into. But Jesus offers grace. He offers something different than the Pharisees. You know, for many years now, the proportion of church-going people in America has been steadily declining. And the proportion of non-religious people has been increasing. And sometimes Christians sort of ring their hands when we hear 
those statistics and think, oh. but remember this. When Jesus was on earth, his ministry wasn't only attractive to traditionally religious people. Jesus was attractive to tax collectors and sinners because some of them realized, yeah, you know, we've tried to find our way up and out financially, and maybe we've done well for ourselves financially, but some of them realized they weren't in a good place. And they needed something more than they were getting from their tax collector job and from their partying lifestyle. And they knew that there was something else that they needed. And they were attracted to Jesus. You see, if we've met the real Jesus, the Jesus who offers amazing grace, and if we've been transformed by that grace, and if we see people around us through his eyes, then we have good news. Not just for people who are naturally inclined to come to church anyway, but even for people who don't have any religious background at all. Even for people who were like Levi and his friends. So that's the first thing we see about Jesus is he's a doctor for the sick, and that means there's a place for everyone who comes to him to belong. The second thing we see about Jesus is that Jesus is the lover of our souls. In other words, following Jesus is not boring and lifeless. It's deeply life-giving. We find life in Jesus that isn't available anywhere else. Verse 16, the Pharisees ask, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Again, in verse 18, there's another why question. Why are John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fasting, but your disciples don't? Now, a little background on fasting. Uh, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, all Israelites were required to fast and pray for one day, according to Leviticus 16. And there are also several examples in the Old Testament when God's people fasted, that is, they went, out with, went without eating for a period of time or limited themselves to, uh, you know, didn't eat sweets or didn't eat certain kinds of food uh, and prayed to seek God's guidance when they were facing difficult decisions, to seek God's deliverance when they were in desperate situations, to mourn over tragedies and repent over sins and to long for the fullness of God's kingdom to come. So fasting was... Uh, common practice for all those reasons in the Old Testament. And Jesus is not against fasting. In fact, verse 20, he says that when he's no longer physically present with his disciples, his disciples should also fast. So Christians today should fast and pray for all those reasons and other similar reasons. Uh, in fact, this is the first Sunday in Lent, which is the 40 days leading up to Easter, a time when many Christians uh, uh, traditionally uh, spend some time fasting uh, in some form or another. And, and I'd encourage you to consider that. You know, sometime between now and Easter, maybe take one day or even just one meal where uh, you go without eating and instead spend that time in prayer. Maybe you do that alone. Maybe you do that uh, praying with other believers just as a way of sort of stopping our normal routines and seeking the Lord. Now, Jesus doesn't, so, so Jesus is not against fasting, but what does he say about why his disciples weren't fasting like the Pharisees were? Back, to, back then, the Pharisees would fast on Mondays and Thursdays every week, twice a week, uh, for uh, not necessarily the whole day, but for a significant part of the day, and then they'd have their evening meal. Um, 
And Jesus' disciples seemed like probably didn't follow that pattern, didn't fast that often. Um, and look at Jesus' response in verse 19. Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they can't fast. Now, what does that mean? Okay, think about the logic. Jesus, why do your disciples not fast? Because the bridegroom's with them. So, who's the bridegroom? Jesus. Jesus. What does that mean? Well, if you go back to the Old Testament, God is described as the king of his people, but he's also described as the lover of his people, or the bridegroom, the husband of his people. So, God had walked with Israel through the wilderness. Jeremiah 2, verse 2 says, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert. So the Lord walked with Israel through the wilderness as their lover, as their husband. And yet the people of Israel had forsaken their true lover, the Lord, and they'd gone after idols, which didn't actually love them, because they didn't actually have life in them. They thought they would, they'd find life there, and then everything fell apart. They were exiled from their land, but God gave them a word of hope. So Isaiah 62, verses 4 to 5, this is the word of the prophet. And he said, you shall no more be called forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. You see, what's Jesus saying here when he's saying he's the bridegroom and he's with them? He's saying, I am the true lover of your souls. And I have come to you where when, when you've been forsaken, when you've, in fact, when you've forsaken me, I've come to bring you back. I've come bring you back home. I've come to woo you back and to bring you joy and gladness and fullness. I'm here and the wedding feast has begun. In verses 19 to 22, Jesus gives three images that are all images of newness. Image of the bridegroom being with the wedding guests, a new marriage. Verse 21, a new piece of cloth. Verse 22, new wine and new wineskins. They're all wedding images because people wear special clothes to a wedding. People drink new wine at a wedding, right? It's a celebration. It's a place of joy and, and delight. Jesus is saying, I've come to bring something new and life-giving. You see, all over the world, people hunger for love, right? People think that a relationship, a new relationship, or a new marriage will bring life, will bring, will make your whole life new. I mean, that's why there's so many songs about love. That's why there's so many movies about love, right? Because we hope that somehow love will make our world new. And at an earthly level, there's a sense in which it can to some, to a limited extent, right? When you enter into a new relationship or new marriage, 
The whole world now looks different because it's not just I who is now living, it's we who are building a life together. So in the process of preparing for marriage or entering into marriage, you have to leave behind a bunch of old things. Maybe it's the old furniture from the old apartment or old routines and habits from life as a single person. And you gradually embrace a new way of life together. That's how it's supposed to go, at least. Now, this is not a sermon about building a good marriage. That's another topic for another day. But here's the point that I want to make. And it's true whether you're single, married, divorced, widowed. Jesus is the one who our hearts and souls are longing for above all else. He's the true lover of our souls, and he's come to make all things new. The Apostle Paul would later write, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, and the new has come. You see, when, Je you see, when Jesus comes into your life, the old containers, the old clothes, the old attachments all have to go. Because he's come to bring something new and glorious. can't just stick a piece of new cloth on an old garment. You can't just add Jesus into your old way of life. He's come to make all things new. You see, when you truly connect to Jesus, it's not boring at all. It's more life-giving than anything else in the world to find him. You see, Jesus is a doctor for the sick, and he's the lover of our soul. Let me just challenge you. Have you experienced Jesus in those ways? Because that's what he says he is. That's what the, the gospel invites us to receive him and experience him in those ways. He's not just who many people think he is. He's not just like the Pharisees back then. He's not just the same old thing over and over and over again. He's a doctor for the sick, and so we can come and find a place of belonging and rest in him, and he's the lover of our souls, and he's come to make all things new. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would see you and know you in these ways, as the doctor for the sick, as the lover of our souls. Lord, your words were surprising. To people back then, we pray that we would be surprised by them where we need to be surprised by them too. Pray that you would continue your work of making us new. Pray that we would run to you as our the doctor for our souls and the lover for our souls. And find great joy and delight in you and find healing and grace, and all that we really need. pray all these things in your name. Amen. What a joy to know that we are loved and made new and let's rejoice as we sing and can it be there's some really good harmony part to this and if you know them sing them
to the end of our service this morning. Thank you for joining us. Feel free to come into the next room for coffee and refreshments and sign up for the dinner next Saturday. Or feel free to use this space to fellowship and encourage one another as well. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.